Motherhood has been used to oppress and exploit women for centuries, but it doesn't have to be this way. And as mothers, we're ready for a revolution. We love our kids, but we struggle with losing our identities, bearing the weight of motherhood without enough support, and striving to meet those impossible standards of what it means to be a good mother. It's time to openly discuss how motherhood is deeply affected by patriarchy, racism, and capitalism so that we can break free of these systems. As mothers, we know our work is valuable and has radical potential to birth a more equitable and inclusive future for ourselves and our children. Welcome to the Rebel Mothers Podcast. I'm your host, Susie Fishleader, and together we'll explore the challenges of modern motherhood and reclaim mothering as an act of liberation. Hello. So today I'm premiering a new type of episode where I do a deep dive on a real rebel mother. Historically, the stories of many incredible, brilliant, you know, culture-shaping women were frequently told only in relation to the men around them, right, or the children that they raised. Sometimes we only know of these women because they're the wife of so-and-so or the mother of so-and-so. But I've always been curious about the experience of the woman herself. And I'm particularly interested in hearing the stories of mothers, not in relation to their children, but from her point of view, especially if she was an activist or a rebel mother in some way. So each month or so, I'm going to feature a different rebel mother and show her has a whole human being full of dreams and passion and flaws and wisdom and imagination. And I want to be inspired by stories of mothers who use their mothering experience as fuel for their activism. Women who didn't see motherhood as incompatible with their desire for social justice or a distraction from their you know, real potential. I want to hear about mothers who embrace the yes and of motherhood. Yes, they were a mother and they were a scholar, a writer, um, activist, artist, and more. I'm particularly interested in hearing from you all too. Who do you think I should feature? I've got a whole list of people I think are fascinating and I can't wait to learn more about them, but... This show isn't just for me, it is for you as well. So if you have any thoughts on a rebel mother, either a historical figure or someone who is doing amazing work today in the world of motherhood, please let me know. You can email me at susie at susiefishleader.com and I would love to hear some ideas from you. So today I'm going to actually read a quote real quick from the rebel mother we're learning about today, which is Coretta Scott King. I'm sure the title gave it away. Um, And this quote actually perfectly sums this idea up. And in fact, this quote is the inspiration for this whole series of Rebel Mothers. Uh, I read her memoir, Coretta, My Life, My Love, My Legacy, earlier this year. And so she wrote, Most people who have followed my career from afar, or even given me a second thought, know me as Mrs. King, the wife of, the widow of, the mother of, the leader of. Makes me sound like the attachments that come with my vacuum cleaner. In one sense, I don't mind that at all. I'm proud to have been a wife, a single parent, and a leader. But I am more than a label. I am also Coretta. End quote. So when I read her memoir, I was, I was blown away by this astonishing woman and mother. And while she is widely celebrated for her tireless efforts in advancing you know, racial equity and justice, one aspect of her activism that often goes unnoticed is the profound way in which she used her role as a mother to advocate for change. So she fits right in. Let's hear a little bit more about her own story and get to know Coretta. So Coretta Scott was born in 1927 in Alabama, 
at the deep at the time that state was deeply entrenched in Jim Crow laws, you know, extreme racial segregation and discrimination. Uh, she opens her memoir, in fact, with a story about the time she was 15 and white supremacists burned her family home to the ground, the home that her father had built with his own hands. So she was no stranger to how personal this type of racial hatred was. Coretta's own mother, Bernice Scott, was a radical in her own way, and she was fiercely committed to ensuring that her own three children received an education, despite the economic realities of the fact that they were in a depression and, of course, segregation. White supremacy was the norm. So Coretta first attended a school called the Lincoln Normal School, which was a private boarding school for African-American students. She did really well academically, and because of her talent for singing and music, she was offered a scholarship to Antioch College in Ohio. This was a big deal because Antioch College was a progressive school that really cared about social justice. It was at Antioch where Coretta began to develop her own ideas about civil rights and social change. This was long before she met Martin Luther King Jr. And she began to dream of a world where, quote, all kinds of people will be welcome and can live in peace and harmony, end quote. So the vision of this world would eventually be named the Beloved Community, and it was these early years of Coretta's education and connections that helped prepare her to be part of one of the greatest human rights movements of the 20th century. So let's fast forward to 1951 when she was 24 years old. Coretta was accepted to the New England Conservatory of Music to study voice and violin. And one day, a friend of hers, Mary Powell, introduced Coretta to Martin Luther King Jr., who was pursuing his doctorate in systematic theology at Boston University. And Coretta was at first a a little bit unsure, but she quickly became moved by his charisma, intelligence, and his deep commitment to the civil rights movement. They fell in love. In fact, Martin actually, I thought this was funny, he brought up the subject of marriage on their first date. So Coretta wrote, quote, It became clear that Martin wanted a stay-at-home wife who was intelligent and well-educated, but who would be a homemaker and a mother of his children, end quote. Martin intended to become a pastor of a large church and wanted someone who could handle the role of being a pastor's wife, which is a huge part in the community. So let's zoom out a little bit for context. So this is the early 1950s, and many women, black or white, were expected to fulfill traditional gender roles within their families. This often meant being the primary caretaker of the children, as well as taking on domestic tasks like cooking and cleaning and laundry, right? Women were responsible for maintaining family cohesion and nurturing their children's development, even in the face of racial discrimination for black families. And in Alabama, the roles and expectations for black women were heavily influenced by deeply entrenched racism and discrimination. Economically, opportunities were limited, and they were often relegated to you know, low-paying, domestic, or service-oriented jobs. Access to higher education and professional careers was very restricted, and that obviously contributed to economic disparities between black and white women. Coretta had already broken some of these barriers with her pursuit of higher education and a professional career in music. So despite the limitations placed on them in the 1950s, many black women played a crucial role in sustaining the black community in Alabama. You know, they were the backbone of churches and community organizations. They provided essential support and guidance. They served as educators in segregated schools where they could instill a sense of pride and resilience and a desire for change in children. And their dedication to preserving cultural heritage and fostering a strong community spirit really laid the foundation for the civil rights movement and beyond. 
So Coretta realized that if she were going to marry Martin, she would need to fulfill that role for him to support his career and care for the family while he led the church. But she didn't want to give up on her dreams entirely. She insisted when they got married, so Martin Luther King Sr. was who married them, she insisted that he take out the word obey from the traditional vows. And she very smartly changed her major from performing arts to music education so she could help support the family wherever they live by teaching. She wasn't totally ready to give up on her own independence yet. So Coretta and Martin married in June of 1953, and their first daughter, Yolanda, was born in November of 1955. And this is two weeks before a seamstress and NAACP secretary named Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama, the same town where the new King family lived. Let's step back a bit again. So the middle of the 1950s was obviously an incredibly tense period of time in the South, and especially in Alabama. In 1954, the year before the Montgomery bus boycott began, the Supreme Court had decided, you know, in Brown versus Board of Education, that racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional. So schools were beginning to integrate and emotions were running super hot. Then in August of 1955, Emmett Till, 14-year-old boy from Chicago, was murdered in Mississippi by two white men. His mother requested an open casket funeral, and the picture of his you know, brutally beaten body was widely publicized, and that really shocked and horrified the whole nation and brought a lot of attention to the violence that Black people were enduring in the South. And then, of course, his murderers were acquitted, even though they confessed later, and that really ignited a sense of urgency in this fight for racial equality. And then even before, you know, Rosa Parks, there had been other black women who had refused to move on buses. The bus situation was was not new. So March of 1955, uh, there was a 15-year-old named Claudette Colvin who had refused to give up her seat. And then even 10 years earlier, there was a woman named Irene Morgan in Virginia who didn't move when asked to give up her seat by a white couple. And then even 12 years before, Rosa Parks herself was stopped from boarding a city bus by a driver who ordered her to board at the rear door and then drove off without her. So earlier in 1955, Parks had completed a course in race relations where um, the idea of nonviolent civil disobedience had been discussed as a tactic. So on December 1st, 1955, when she was told by the bus driver to move back so that a white man could take her seat, all of the other people in her row complied and Parks refused and she was arrested. So the next day, Friday, December 2nd, a local civil rights leader, E.D. Nixon, called Martin Luther King Jr. and said, we've taken this type of thing too long. Uh, quote, I feel the time has come to boycott the buses. It's the only way to make the white folks see that we will not take this sort of thing any longer. End quote. So the very next day, the King residence, their house, began to serve as a command post for this new group, which would eventually be named the Montgomery Improvement Association, MIA. And Coretta, in her memoir, explained that it was her responsibility that weekend to answer the telephone for directions and encouragement. She was also cooking meals. She was taking notes at these meetings. So hold up. <laughs> this is Saturday, December 3rd. Coretta's baby girl had, was born on November 17th. She was two weeks postpartum, and she was helping to organize and sit in on meetings on one of the biggest political and social protest campaigns in the civil rights movement. When I was two weeks postpartum, I feel like I could barely walk around the block with my baby like strapped to my chest. I was still bleeding. I was leaking breast milk. I was exhausted. I was emotional. I was sweaty. 
And I feel like I just spent most of the day wearing old pajama pants and like a ratty bathrobe that I kept open for boob access. And I'm trying to imagine myself wearing like a 1950s house dress, maybe even heels, baking casseroles and pastries, making urgent phone calls and taking notes. And yeah, I just, I don't, I don't think I'm cut out for that. I don't think I could do it. She's amazing. So then a really scary thing happened. Um... Shortly after the bus boycott began, Coretta and a friend were sitting in the living room of their house when they heard a sound. Before they could even get halfway out of the room, a bomb exploded on the front porch. It shattered the door and the window. The house was filled with smoke. Coretta grabbed the baby and, you know, nobody was hurt. Um, But she wrote about it saying, quote, The boycott had become personal for me very quickly. It burned into my mind the price I might have to pay for refusing to bow down to a system that insisted upon reducing us to less than human. The knowledge that I could be killed, along with all the people I loved, had to settle within me. In addition, Martin was unfairly jailed for the first time, which made me understand that if we continued with the movement, I would have to adjust to his being snatched away from me without really knowing if we would ever return. Montgomery made me face the reality that I could lose my own life and leave my daughter without a mother. So the Montgomery bus boycott continued for over a year. And then the Supreme Court finally upheld the ruling that Alabama's racial segregation laws for buses were unconstitutional. And this event is really what propelled Martin Luther King Jr. into national attention as you know, a rising civil rights leader. And Coretta had her own private concerns about this attention. You know, she was asking herself, like, how involved was she supposed to get with the civil rights movement? She had a new baby. Was she supposed to just be a mother? Was she supposed to continue her career as a concert singer? Should she become a public speaker? How, you know, could she balance being there for Martin and being home with the children and being deeply involved in the movement and having her own career? And I think every mother has asked herself similar versions of these questions at every major life transition, although maybe not perhaps to such a degree. But Look, the civil rights movement was rushing along and Coretta was fully swept up in the action. She opened the first meeting of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is an organization that believed that the most potent weapon available was nonviolent social action. And this would define King's movement for the rest of of his life. Coretta and Martin traveled extensively uh, during this time, which connected them to world leaders and you know, let them have a deeper understanding of the world and other social injustices. Um, It was during these travels in 1957, during a trip to Ghana, Coretta realized that she was pregnant again. So Martin Luther King III was born on October 23rd, 1957. And just to place this in the time of civil rights, this is five weeks after the Little Rock Central High School integration, you know, where the famous Little Rock Nine students had to be escorted into the school by the National Guard. So at this point, Coretta kind of stepped away from many of her activities as she tried to stay home with her two children. But she still really struggled in that limited role that the expectations of the time placed on her. She felt called to music and her concert career. And she enjoyed being Martin's co-partner and confidant in the civil rights movement. And she recalls a conversation with Martin where he asked, you aren't totally happy being my wife and the mother of my children, are you? And she replied, I love being your wife and the mother of your children. But if that's all I am to do, I'll go crazy. So now their third child, Dexter Scott King, was born in January of 1961. In December of 1961, Martin was jailed in Albany, Georgia. 
And so Coretta would leave her baby with the caregivers and she would drive the older two children who at that time were seven and five to go visit Martin in jail. And really the King family was continuously under threat. Martin was nearly fatally stabbed in 1958. And during the course of his civil rights activism, he was arrested a total of 29 times. This put a huge strain on the family, understandably, and Coretta was the one to hold everyone together. And she always remained committed to nonviolent action as a means of protest. So in 1963, Coretta was eight months pregnant with her fourth child. And then this is when the Kings turned their attention to Birmingham, Alabama, which had been named by a black newspaper as the worst city in America for racial injustice. Their fourth and final child, Bernice, was born on March 28th, and the very next day, Martin drove to Birmingham to take part in protests that he'd helped organize. Coretta has been asked if she felt abandoned or neglected because of his quick departure, and her answer is that, quote, for the most part, Martin and I shared values. I knew he loved his family, but we both had a higher calling and purpose that was much larger than the fulfillment of our own desires. As much as I loved Martin, I knew he belonged not just to me, but to his calling. It had to be his first priority, end quote. So as you probably know, Martin was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama on April 12th, which was Good Friday. Uh, Coretta waited for a day, but had received no word for him. And she was still recovering from her pregnancy. She'd had a complicated pregnancy, complicated birth, and she couldn't leave her house, right? Again, this is two weeks after now the, the birth of her fourth child. So she was desperate to hear if he was okay. She placed a call to the White House and eventually spoke to President Kennedy, who sent the FBI to check on Martin and assured Coretta that he was all right. This is when, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote the famous Letters from Birmingham Jail, which if you haven't read recently, I encourage you to go back and read again um, because they're very powerful. It's a very moving statement of the time that is still quite relevant today. So a few months later, the March on Washington was organized. This is where, of course, Martin gives his famous, I have a dream speech. Again, if you haven't heard it in a while, you probably heard it in elementary school, go back and listen to it again. I, preparing for this episode, you know, I read some of his writings, I listened to the speech, and it's just, it never stops being moving. So Coretta was not able to do the march, but she was right there with Martin on the platform. And she expressed her disappointment, but Martin said, hey, the wives aren't marching, but I do need you up here. So during all this time, the FBI has been extensively monitoring Martin and the rest of the King family. They really hoped to discredit him personally, which they hoped would undermine his reputation and disrupt the civil rights movement. So, you know, they put out FBI allegations that said, included ties to communism, tax evasion, and multiple affairs with other women. And Coretta addresses this in her memoir. She wrote, all I can speak for is what I know. I don't have any evidence, and I never had a gut feeling that told me he had strayed. I never experienced any feelings of being rejected. I'm not saying that Martin was a saint. I never said he was perfect. Nobody is perfect. But as far as I'm concerned, our marriage was a very good marriage, and it was like that all the way to the end. I know this episode is about Coretta, but it's impossible to separate her from her love of Martin. She wrote, For 14 years, I had been with Martin in the thicket of controversy. My husband and I had been emotional twins. He thought of me as so close, I was only a heartbeat away. I was his confidant. He was my best friend. I was his best student. He was the icing on my cake, the cream in my coffee. We could finish each other's sentences, feel each other's sounds, and share each other's jokes. 
So Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered on April 4th, 1968. But Coretta could not let herself dissolve into grief. Her children were her first priority, and she focused her energy on them as she and others around her organized the funeral. You know, and as a mother, she had to answer all these impossible questions that we all ask ourselves after death, and especially children. You know, her youngest daughter, she says how her youngest daughter wanted to know how her daddy was going to eat and what a spirit is. How do you answer these questions, right? In the days and weeks and months after his death, Coretta adjusted to her new life as a single mother. And despite her own sadness, she made herself get out of bed in the morning to be there for her children. You know, she was determined not to let them see her break down because then they might lose their way. Each of her children really struggled with the loss of their father in their own way, and especially because he met such a violent end. But Coretta was committed to helping them through this period of turmoil and you know unrest. But while she identified as a mother first and her children were her first priority, she was still fiercely determined to keep her husband's mission alive and secure his legacy. Remember, Coretta was a social justice activist before she married, and she remained committed to the civil rights movement for the rest of her life. Thousands of requests for Coretta to come speak, to accept awards in his name, poured in from across the globe. And she wanted to do them all, but eventually she realized she needed to decide what to focus her activism on. And immediately her concern was about fighting for livable wages and better conditions for workers. So four days after his assassination, Coretta flew to Memphis to lead a workers' march that Martin had organized. She recognized that economic justice was intertwined with racial equality. She actively supported labor unions and workers' struggles for fair wages, safe working conditions, and collective bargaining rights. So, you know, her involvement in workers' rights was right in line with her broader commitment to social justice, as she believed that all forms of oppression were interconnected. She also became more vocal in women's rights. At that same speech that the workers march, she specifically addressed the women in the audience, saying, quote, The woman power of this nation can be the power which makes us whole and heals the rotten community, now so shattered by war and poverty and racism. I have great faith in the power of women who will dedicate themselves wholeheartedly to the task of remaking our society. She was the first woman to and single mother to deliver a class day address at Harvard University in June of 1968. She believed that the fight for women's rights was an essential part of the broader battle for social justice. And Coretta used her platform to speak out on issues like equal pay, reproductive rights, and the role of women in leadership. Additionally, Coretta was an early pioneer for LGBTQ rights when President Jimmy Carter appointed her to serve as commissioner at the International Women's Year Conference in 1977. She maintained the belief that, quote, discrimination is unacceptable in a democracy that protects the human rights of all its citizens. Racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, and bigotry based on sexual orientation are all forms of intolerance that are unworthy of America as a democracy. If the basic right of one group can be denied, all groups become vulnerable, end quote. Coretta was actively involved in global human rights issues as well. She served a brief ambassadorship in the United Nations, and she was a vocal critic of the Vietnam War. In fact, less than a month after Martin's death, she marched with protesters in Central Park for the Spring Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam, and she addressed the crowd. And she was also very vocal about condemning the oppressive apartheid regime in South Africa. 
Coretta used her platform to draw attention to these injustices and the need for international solidarity against apartheid. And her advocacy efforts helped raise awareness about the issue and contributed to that international pressure that ultimately led to the dismantling of apartheid and the establishment of a more equitable South Africa. So one of Coretta's biggest legacies is establishing the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, which we just call the King Center, and also securing the designation of Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a national holiday. And these were monumental undertakings for Coretta. She faced numerous challenges and opposition along the way, including from people she had worked with for years. You know, the creation of the King Center required fundraising efforts in the tens of millions of dollars and also a ton of organizational work, right? And I think there were a lot of groups who wanted her to be helping them fundraise for their organizations and, you know, accept awards and act as Martin Luther King Jr.'s widow, but she was determined to preserve and promote her husband's legacy. And then again, you know, the push for the national holiday faced resistance from some people. Some concerns were like, um, the cost of additional holiday, and then really this resistance, a lot of it was just rooted in racism. But hopefully it's clear by now that Coretta Scott King was full of determination, unwavering commitment, and relentless advocacy, right? And her tireless efforts eventually led to the establishment of the King Center and the recognition of her husband's birthday as a federal holiday. And both of these really stand and will stand for years as enduring tributes to not only her husband's legacy, but also her dedication and her fight for civil rights and social justice. So I feel like I could go on and on and list all the causes. It's, it's, she supported so much, but I do want to bring the focus back to her role as a mother. So remember, all of this was done while also raising four children as a single mother. And as a mother, she recognized that the struggle for civil rights was not just a political or social issue, it was also deeply personal. She firmly believed that a just and equal society should be one where families of all races could thrive. All of Coretta's children grew up in the shadow of their father's name. This carried both privilege and a lot of burden. And each of them spent time advocating or marching with Coretta in various ways, and they've all dedicated their lives to furthering the King principles. I mean, she's raised amazing children. If you want to take some time to look up what they've been involved in, it's pretty special. Um, two of her children, so her daughter Bernice and her son Martin Luther III, they were arrested right alongside with Coretta in 1985 while they were all taking part in an anti-apartheid protest at the Embassy of South Africa. So it's just, I want to highlight Coretta Scott King's motherhood was not separate from her activism. It was an integral part of it. She used her role as a mother to advocate for a more just and equal society for not only her children, but all children. So to wrap this up, Coretta Scott King was not just a remarkable civil rights leader and activist, but also an extraordinary mother who used her motherhood as a source of strength and inspiration in her fight for justice and equality. She really defied the traditional roles and expectations of her time, balancing her role as a mother with her commitment to the civil rights movement. Her journey from her early life in racially segregated Alabama to becoming the wife of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and a leader in her own right is really a testament to her resilience and her determination. Throughout her life, Coretta faced 
immense challenges and personal sacrifices, from the bombing of her home as a young mother to the constant threat of violence against her family and the horrifying death of her young husband. Yet she remained steadfast in her dedication to the civil rights cause and used her voice to advocate for change. Coretta's involvement in workers' rights, women's rights, anti-apartheid efforts, and her opposition to the Vietnam War showcased her commitment to global social justice. And as a mother, Coretta prioritized her children's well-being while also instilling in them the values of justice, equality, and nonviolence. Her role as a mother did not hinder her activism. Instead, it fueled her determination to create a better world for her children and future generations. Coretta's legacy extends beyond her work in the civil rights movement. It encompasses her unwavering love for her family and her relentless pursuit of justice, making her a true icon of both motherhood and activism. Stay tuned for more empowering stories and insightful discussions in future episodes of Rebel Mothers. Remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast to spread the message far and wide. Learn more at suzyfishleader.com. And thank you for being part of the motherhood revolution.